Well, good morning, everyone. My name, good morning, sorry. Gotta give you your chance. Good morning, my name is Jordan, and it's great to be here with you today. I'm one of the pastors here at eFree. Welcome to everybody over here in the auditorium. Welcome to everybody watching online, and good morning, welcome to, I got that wrong. Everybody in the venue, good morning. To everybody watching online, good morning as well. Okay. So we are in a series called God is Competitors, which we started last week. And so we are talking about these false images that we form in our mind about who God is, and they can uh, affect our lives. That There's this, these resting images or portraits that we act out of or we respond to. And so we want to talk about these false competitors or these weak competitors and how they can affect our, our view of God. And so if you were not here last week, I would really encourage you to go back and watch uh, the introductory message that Pastor Adrian gave last week, along with just talking about um, this false competitor of God as a divine drill instructor, that you have to get everything right in order for God to love you. But the reality was that we have a great God, and he loves both the good and the bad. And so we have these default portraits of God that need to be reformed to look like Jesus. So this is our, our first takeaway this morning. And it's that throughout this series we're going to be talking about, we have these default portraits of God, and they need to be reformed to look like Jesus. We want to reshape them so they properly reflect who Jesus is, so that when we respond, we respond based on who God truly is, not on these false, weak competitors. So today we're going to be talking about the weak competitor of a tricky genie. And this idea is that God isn't trustworthy that he's manipulative or he's wanting to get the best of us. And so I, I think this comes from, um, whether it's folk stories or TV ads or different things where there's some magical character and they give wishes to somebody, but then they turn those wishes against the person. So there, there's a lot of folk tales and things where somebody, whatever they do, they chop down a tree and there's a wizard in it or whatever it might be, whether it's a wizard, a magician, genie, and then he gives them three wishes. And the person decides, I don't like my nose. You know, it's not big enough or it's too big. It needs to be smaller. And so they say, I want a better nose. And so then they get, poof, elephant trunk. And then they can you know, grab things up on the top shelf. They can smell things far away. And the genie's going, that's a better nose. They go, but this is not what I wanted. And they keep turning the, the wishes against them. Or it can be more sinister than that. And so the person says, I'd like a million dollars. Genie snaps his fingers and there's a knock on the door. Open the door and there's a messenger there to say that their husband died in a car accident and you're gonna collect their life insurance policy of a million dollars. You're going, this is not what I meant when I said I wanted a million dollars. And so that, that's how it can play out and shape this image, but then how it affects us in our spiritual lives is that we can hold back parts of our lives. I remember when I was in college, one of the areas that I just didn't want to surrender to God was I didn't want to say to him, you can send me wherever you want. Because I was convinced that as soon as I said to him, God, anywhere you want to send me, I'll, I'll do whatever you want. He was going to say, great, Jordan. I need someone to go to the Amazon rainforest, to like the deepest parts where there's this indigenous tribe that they don't speak any language close to what you speak. And I want you to spend the next like decades trying to learn their language so that you can share the gospel with them. And they may or may not like spear you to death. Like that's what was my image of if I was like, God, you can do whatever you want, that, that as soon as I surrendered that, he was going to twist it against me and send me to some place that I didn't want to go, and he was going to put me in harm's way. Or maybe it's this image of 
of God where I have to get everything right, that, that I have to close every loophole. Otherwise, if I leave any of them open, then God's gonna have a way to get out of this contract or this agreement with me. And so I, I, there's a time in my life where I would worry about every part of my prayer. I would worry about, am I using the first part of my prayer right? Am I addressing God rightly? And then am I getting the tone in the middle right? Do I, not, do, I, do I sound entitled? Or do I sound whiny? And then I make sure that I end it the right way with, in Jesus' name, amen. And along the way, I'm gonna make sure that I got my hands folded, my eyes closed, and my head bowed. Otherwise, am I really praying? And this feeling of like, God's not gonna respond if I don't get every single thing right. And I think that, that place, it comes out of this image of God being untrustworthy. That God doesn't want what's best for us that we have to try and trick and manipulate him into giving us what we want because he's not actually out to give us what's best. He's not actually trustworthy. And so today we're going to talk about how God is concerned with our hearts, that, that it's not the cleverness of our words that's most important, but it, it's our hearts and that God is trustworthy. So let's pray and then we'll, we'll look at this. Father God, would you please help me this morning to be clear and concise and would you help us to see who you are? That we want our image of who you are to be right. We want it to be reformed, to look like you and not like this, this competitor of a tricky genie. Amen. Okay, so the weak competitor that we are looking at, again, is God is a tricky genie. And he's a tricky genie who wants to turn our words and desires against us. And so this is the weak competitor. He's a tricky genie who wants to turn our words and desires against us. So again, if you, you have this false view of God, it can play out in a couple different ways. One is that it's this idea that God is just waiting for me to trust him so that he can inflict pain or difficulty on my life, which revealed itself in my life when I didn't want to say you can send me anywhere you want because I was convinced it was going to be to some middle of the desert Africa or Siberia or the Amazon rainforest that he wouldn't leave me in Kearney, Nebraska where I loved living and I wanted to be involved. He was going to send me to some faraway place. Or it could be that God demands I cross every T and I dot every I or he won't respond to me. That I have to get everything exactly perfect and right or he won't respond. He won't listen. He won't do what I'm asking him to do. He'll ignore me. Or he'll wiggle out of his promises because he can say there's a loophole. So if this is your view of God, then anytime God presents you with a contract, you're like, I gotta have a lawyer look at this. Multiple lawyers look at this. Like, I need him to look, look for any loophole. Any, any time he makes a promise, go, I need, to, I need my guy to look it over and see if there's a loophole in this. And so it, I, I think of the, the movie The Santa Claus with Tim Allen. You know, Santa Claus falls off the roof, coat's there, Tim Allen he looks at the, the little card in the pocket, it's like, whatever, puts on the coat, finds out now he's Santa Claus. And then finds out there's fine, 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 fine print that says if you put on the coat, you're Santa Claus. And I think this is one of the ways that we're like, is God really going to keep his promises? These seem too good to be true. So there's got to be some way that he's going to be manipulative with this. He's going to wiggle out of these promises. Which is funny, because whenever my phone asks me to agree to terms and conditions, I never read them. Like, you just scroll to the bottom, and you're like, I just want to use my phone. Where do I click agree? Where do I hit sign? And you're done. Which is ironic that I trust my cell phone company far more than I trust God. 
And so today we want to look at God as trustworthy so that if God puts a contract in front of us, we would say, absolutely, that I believe you're for me, I believe you're good, there's nothing in this would be against me, it's all for me, I'll sign wherever. So we're going to look at Mark 5. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to open them with me to Mark chapter 5. Mark is in the New Testament. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So if you get to Matthew, go to the right, you'll find Mark. If you get to Luke, John, Acts, Romans, you too far to the right, go back to the left, and you'll find Mark. So as you're looking for Mark 5, 25, I want to give you some background context because we're in the middle of an event that's occurring. So Jesus arrived at this town, and as he's getting to town, these crowds are forming around him, and in the crowd there's this guy who was a synagogue leader, and he comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, please, my daughter is sick and is dying. Would you please come to my home and heal her because she's going to die if you don't? And Jesus says, yes. And they start traveling to this man's home. And there's this massive crowd that is following him. So in my mind, I think of um, like if you're coming out large sporting events or a concert or something where it's just this like crush of humanity and everybody is like trying to get a little bit of space and they're bumping into you and there's just people everywhere. This is the crowd that is following Jesus from wherever he was to the synagogue leader's house. In verse 25, we pick up this moment in history. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. So pause there. So in this crowd of people, there is a woman who has been bleeding for 12 years. So she has had chronic illness for 12 years. And so I don't know everyone's story in this room, But my guess is that there are some people in this room that have been dealing with chronic illness and some people in the venue, maybe some people watching online, that you've dealt with chronic illness, or at least you know people that have dealt with chronic illness. They've gone to the doctors and the doctors are saying, I'm sorry, there's nothing we can do for this. We we can give you some medicine that might improve it a little bit, but at the end of the day, we can't make it better. And and the heartache of having to to deal with that illness and, and the pain of walking day after day with that and carrying it around. Because if you're like me, you know, if I'm sick and it gets into a week, I'm like, come on. Like, this is terrible. I don't, like, I just want to get healthy again. So for 12 years, she has this. And it's possible that in that, there is these questions of, did I do something to deserve this? Did I, did I do something wrong? Why, why am I not getting better? And then we're told that she went to doctor after doctor to try and get better. And not only did she not get better, she got worse. And she spent everything she had. So she has tried everything to get better, is not getting better, and continues to be sick. On top of that, in the Jewish community, if you were bleeding, you were unclean. You were ritually impure, and you had to tell other people to stay away from you. So most likely when she would come towards people, she would say, unclean, unclean. So they knew not to touch her because if they touched her, then they would become ritually impure. They wouldn't be able to worship in the temple. They'd have to go through a process of purification. And so it's likely that for 12 years, she has not had a handshake or a high five or a hug or an arm placed around her. 
because anybody that would touch her would become impure and unclean. And so she has probably had very little human contact in 12 years. And she's also not been able to go into the area of worship, into the temple area, that if you're impure and clean, you can't go in that area. And so she, the closest she can get is the, the outside courtyard. She can walk up to that barrier and she can look there. For 12 years, that's been her life. And then she hears about Jesus. And she pushes her way through this crowd, thinking, if I can just touch his clothes, I'll be better. And she sees him, and she reaches out, and she touches maybe a tassel. Maybe she brushes his clothes, and then instantly she's healed. She's freed from her suffering. She's made right. Now, what's interesting is when I look at the New Testament, there are two kind of categories for healing. There is non-specific generic healing, which is like a large group of people where the Bible just talks about everyone that came to Jesus that day was made well. And it talks about maybe some of the things that he healed, but doesn't say exactly how those things happened. And then there's individuals. And the individuals, they consistently have the same formula. They consistently come to Jesus, they make a request. God, would you please give me my eyesight? Would you help me to see? God, would you heal my daughter? Would you heal my son? God, would you heal my servant? And there's an interaction. Sometimes it's brief, sometimes it's longer. And then Jesus says, your faith has healed you. Go in, go in peace. What you're asking for is given to you. But this woman doesn't follow the formula. She doesn't ask Jesus for the healing. She just reaches out and touches him, convinced that if she does that, she'd be healed. Should we pick up in verse 30? At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. So instantly when this woman is healed, Jesus knows that he touched her. And he turns around and he says, who touched me? Who, who touched me? And the disciples are like, what kind of question is this? Can't you tell we're in the middle of a mosh pit here? Everybody is touching you. Everybody is bumping into you. Like, what do you mean who touched you? But Jesus keeps looking. Because there's two people who knows what Jesus means when he says, who touched me? It is Jesus and it's this woman. Because Jesus is saying, who was who just healed? Because he knows. Because I think, and I could be wrong, but I think he knows that she was coming. Like it's not this magical, like his cloak doesn't have any special powers. It's faith that he, he heals her through faith. And so I think he saw her coming and he healed her when she touched him. But he stops on the way to a dying girl's house to have a conversation. And, and so he says, who touched me? And he keeps looking and it's obvious that he's not gonna leave until this person comes forward. And so she comes forward and she falls at his feet, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. And so why is she trembling with fear? I, I think there's a few possibilities. One possibility is that she's afraid that he's going to rebuke her. That he's going to, he's going to lay into her and say, how dare you touch me when you're unclean? That, that I know what you had. I know that you were impure. How dare you touch me? 
Or perhaps she's afraid that he's going to condemn her. And he's going to say, how dare you take from me? You didn't ask to be healed. You didn't request for me to do this for you. You just took this from me. How dare you? Or perhaps she's terrified that he's going to take away the healing, that he's going to reverse it. And he's going to say, this isn't for you. You think you just reach out and steal from me? You're going to be condemned for this the rest of your life. And so trembling with fear, she tells him everything. And now in this moment, we're about to find out God's character. How does God respond when people don't do things exactly like everybody else? Verse 34. He said to her, daughter. Not ma'am, not woman, not miss. He says, daughter. Your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. His daughter, your faith has healed you. He says, it wasn't my clothes. It was your faith put in action that healed you. Go in peace. So I think he stops. Like he makes the point of stopping on the way to a dying girl's house. It's not like he's out for a Sunday stroll. Like there, there is life and death hanging in the balance in a sense. And he stops to have a conversation with this woman because I think he wants her to know she hasn't just been healed physically, she's been healed spiritually. She's been healed relationally. He wants her to know that you did not steal from me. I freely chose to forgive you. I freely chose to heal you. I wanted to restore you. I wanted to help you. that he reveals in this moment his character, his trustworthiness, his goodness. That though she didn't ask and he healed her anyway, he wasn't gonna rebuke her for not doing it the way everybody else had done it. And so what we see about our great God, what we see about our great God is that God cares about the condition of our heart, not the cleverness of our words. He cares about the condition of our heart not the cleverness of her words. For so many of us, I think we get more worried about, am I saying the right things more than we are worried about, is my heart in the right place? Because this woman's heart was in the right place. Even if she didn't do things like everybody else, her heart was in the right place and God saw her heart and he responded to her heart. And we have a trustworthy God that we don't have to cross every T and dot every I to get him to respond to us or to get him to listen to us or to get him to care about us or get him to keep his promises to us. He's not looking to wiggle out of his promises. He's not looking for loopholes. He just wants to know the condition of our heart. Do you trust me? Do you believe? Now what happens when we struggle to believe that God cares about the condition of our heart and not the cleverness of our words, and we focus on the cleverness of our words, what happens is we turn our prayer into spells and incantations. That we turn into this belief that I can control God by saying the right things in the right way with the right tone. And I didn't realize this, but like I said earlier, there was a season in my life where I, could, I was convinced I had to start the prayer the right way, and I had to pray in the middle with the right tone, and I had to finish the right way, otherwise God really wasn't gonna respond to me. And then I was listening to a pastor and he was talking about if that's how you view prayer, you thought prayer was a spell. 
You thought that if I say the right words and I say it in the right way, then God has to do what I want. Instead of seeing God as a relational being who has a relationship with us and loves us and cares about us and responds to us. And on top of all that, if that's how we view prayer, it makes prayer inaccessible to people. People go like, I don't know all the right words. Like, do I have to say, you know, our Father who art in heaven, is that how I have to start? Or I have to say, dear Heavenly Father? Or do I have to say, Father God? Or do I have to say, Yahweh? Like, like what do I have to say? And if I, if I say it wrong, is he not gonna, is he gonna go, I don't know who you're talking to. And then if I don't pray with the right subservience or the right submissiveness when I pray, is he just gonna say, well, you prideful person, I'm not listening to you. And if I don't say amen, is he just gonna say, I'm, I'm waiting for you to finish. Like, I'm not gonna respond until you're finished. And so people just get locked up and they just go, I'm not gonna pray. Like, I work with middle school and high school students and so many of them are, are worried to pray because they just go, I, I just don't know what I'm supposed to say. And it's, and I always say to them, just talk to God like he's in the room. Talk to him like he's a person that you wanna talk to, that you wanna tell him about what's going on with your grandma or your grandpa or, or your friend or your mom or your dad. Just tell him what it is that's going on in your heart, in your life, and then just ask him to help. I think more about this because uh, I have a two-year-old, not a two-year-old, he's a soon-to-be-two-year-old son named Harry. And so Harry is developing his speech. And so he can't say dad, he can't say daddy or father, he says dada. And so if he wants my attention, he says dada. And you better believe that when he says dada, I have never looked to him and said, it's father. <laughs> if you want my attention, it's father. And so if we are, are, are wicked people that, that are, are flawed at times, and yet we know how to respond to our kids when they are trying to talk to us, like how much more is our great and good God gonna respond to us when he sees our heart and know we're trying to talk to him? Amen. And yet so much of the time we, we treat him like he's this wicked father that says, you better call me father if you want my response. You better get my title right if you want my response. And so he, he cares about our hearts. The, the other piece of this, though, I think, why we struggle to believe that God is trustworthy is because we suffer. And so I know that there are people in this room that you've prayed for things to get better, whether it's in your own life or in your kids' lives or in some relative or friend's life, and you've prayed, God, would you help them? And they, they just haven't gotten better. And so you wrestle because you just feel like if God was trustworthy, wouldn't he, been, wouldn't he fix this problem? Wouldn't he help these people? And so you begin to doubt, is God trustworthy? And I just want you to know that, that if that is your, your category for viewing God's trust, trustworthiness, it's a, just a broken system. Because all of us suffer. There isn't any person who does not suffer. And so if our category is that if God is trustworthy and if he's good, then I won't suffer, that you're just living in a world that doesn't exist. And so the question is actually, should be, is God with me when I suffer? Is God near to me when I suffer? Or does he abandon me in those places? And that brings me to Psalm 23, verse four. So whenever I'm suffering, or whenever I'm struggling with anxiety or fear or doubt, Psalm 23 is where I go. Because it reminds me instantly that I have a shepherd. I'm not alone. But then you have these, this verse four. 
says, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So some translations say, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. That though I go through the darkest valleys in life, I can make it through because you are with me. That God does not see us walking in these valleys and say, hey, I'll see you on the other side. You know, see that nice sunny oasis? I'm gonna be hanging out there by the pool. And when you go through this and you get out, I'll be there. But instead, as you walk into these dark, difficult places in life and these places of suffering, he takes his rod and he takes his staff and he says, I understand. He says, I am the man of sorrows who is acquainted with deepest grief. I understand suffering. Let's, let's go. And I will walk with you into these dark places and I will support you and I will help you and I will show you where to step and I will get you to the other side. And so I can't give you the answer to why God has not responded to your prayers in the way that you want. But what I can say to you is that I, I believe that he's with you. And so I, I'd encourage you that if you're struggling in those places, say, God, would you help me to see where you are near to me right now? Would you help me to see where you're helping me right now? Even as you're not saying yes to this thing that I'm asking for, you're helping me in other places. I just want to say that if you are struggling with prayer, if that's like your biggest part of the trustworthiness of God, I'd encourage you to go back to the Rooted series. We have a message on prayer in there that really just dives into that idea, and that would address it better than I can just right now. But for many of us, our wrestling with trustworthiness of God comes from we suffer. If you were here last week, um, we read during the, the worship set, Psalm 9, and we read verse 10 in that set. And then when we read it, I was like, this is perfect. Like, we're talking about trustworthiness next week. I have to use this. It says, those who know your name trust in you. For you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. Those who know your name, they trust in you. For you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. So the person who turns to God and says, God, would you please rescue me? Would you please forgive me, a sinner? There is not a single person that God has said no. Not a single one that says, well, there's this loophole that says I don't have to do it for you, and so I'm gonna execute that, and I'm not gonna say no. But again and again and again and again, when person after person comes to him and says, would you forgive me, a sinner? I am in need of your grace and your mercy. Again and again he said, yes, I will rescue you. Which does not mean he's gonna remove all the suffering from our lives here on earth, but means he will be with us and he will carry us into eternity where there will be no suffering, where there will be everything we long for in this life. as I have thought about the, this pic, picture and image of God being a tricky genie versus our great God who sees to our hearts and his concern is about our hearts more than about the cleverness of our words, uh, it brought me to Romans 10.9. So Romans 10.9 says, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And this is a beautiful verse. 
it succinctly shares the gospel. It tells us, what is it you have to do to be saved? You declare that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You believe that God truly is, that Jesus truly is God, that he really did die on the cross and that God really did raise him from the dead. So that, that's what's required. And I don't remember if I was in middle school or if I was in high school or if I was in college, but at some point I read this verse and I thought, well, what about mute people? What about these people that, that they don't have the ability to form words? That because we live in a broken and a flawed world, their, their tongues don't work properly and they can't literally declare Jesus is Lord. That they believe in their heart that God raised them from the dead. They believe in their heart that Jesus is Lord, but they can't literally declare with their mouth. Are these people condemned? Are they going to get to the pearly gates and God's going to say, sorry, there was two conditions, you need to meet them both. And so this is why it's so important that we get the image of God right. Because if the image of God you have is a tricky gene that's looking for every loophole, making sure that you dot every I and cross every T, then mute people are in trouble. Because God has a loophole to say, you didn't do it. But if we have a trustworthy God, who is a good God, then he can see to the heart and he can say, I, I saw that you were longing to proclaim that I was Lord. You were longing to tell people about how great and good I am. You're longing to tell people what the hope you have in me, but you live in a broken world and so you couldn't. But now you're here and you can. Perhaps you've experienced this or perhaps you have seen it, but oftentimes you go to the pool and you're the parent or you're the adult in the pool and there's a toddler on the side of the pool. And what do you say? You say, jump to me and I'll catch you. And the question in that moment is, do you trust? Does the toddler trust that when you jump, they're actually going to catch you, that you're gonna catch them? Do they trust that when they leap out that you're going to grab them? Or do they think that you're gonna go, whoops? And so this is the question, is do we trust God? Because he is saying in this life, he's saying jump and I'll catch you. That there is this question of are you gonna rely on yourself to get yourself into eternity? Are you gonna stand on your own standing and say oh, I've been good enough, I've been righteous enough, I've been well enough? Or are you gonna trust that we have a, a great and good God who is trustworthy, that when he says, trust in me, believe in me, jump, and I'll catch you, that I will be enough for you, that you don't have to be perfect, but what you have to do is you have to believe and trust in my son, that he did die for you, that he did love you, and that he was resurrected to new life. So the question is, do we trust him enough to jump? Or are we going to stand on the side and we're gonna wring our hands and say, no, like you're, you're this tricky genie that if I jump, you're gonna say, oh, I forgot something and turn around. And let me splashing in the water. And so I have to take this other path and try to be as great or good, as nice as I can be and hope that that's gonna be good enough. And it never will be. But the good news is, is we have a God who is 
fully trustworthy and is fully deserving of our trust. I want to leave you with a couple questions just to, to dwell on. The first question is this. Is there any area in my life where fear of not saying the right thing is holding me back? It could be in prayer. It could be in sharing my testimony. It could be in sharing the hope that I have with, uh, my hope that I have in Jesus with other people. It could be in getting baptized. That there's so many people that are concerned and worried that I'm not gonna say exactly the right thing and because I'm not gonna say exactly the right thing, I just don't say anything. And so I hope that you know that God, God is concerned about the condition of your heart, not that you get every word exactly perfect, whether it's in prayer, whether it's in sharing your testimony, whether it's in sharing the hope that you have in Jesus, whether it's in getting baptized. And so I hope that if you've been holding back in one of those areas, you would take a step of trust and faith and you would begin to open up to God in those areas. The next question is, do I have any distrust of God that has caused me to close off parts of my life from God? Do I have any distrust of God that has caused me to close off parts of my life from God? That for me, there was a season it was, God, you can have everything in my life except where I live. Because I want to live in Kearney, Nebraska, and I'm sure that the moment I surrender and say, you can send me wherever I want, I'm going to Siberia or the Amazon or some remote place that I'm gonna be miserable the rest of my life. There's been other seasons where it's my kids. Ready to say, God, like, I'm just not ready to trust you with my kids because I'm, I'm afraid of what you would do with them. As if God is not more trustworthy and better prepared to take care of them than I am. So is there any area that I've closed off part of my life to God because I just don't trust him there? Uh, the last thing is I just wanna make a recommendation to you if this series has really resonated with you and you've really just gone, man, I have loved hearing these pictures of God and it's been helping me to reframe my portrait of who God is. And you're going, I just love to dive more into this during the week. I'd encourage you out in the information center, we have a book called The Good and Beautiful God and it's by James Bryan Smith. And if we run out there, you can buy it on Amazon. You can get a Kindle edition of it if you want. But I've been reading it. It's just been an incredible blessing to me, that um, there's just certain people that when they talk about God, it feels like they know God. It seems like they have him over for dinner on weeknights, and they hang out with him on the weekends, and they know him in a way that I'm like, I long to know him like that. And that's the way that James writes. And so I'd encourage you, um, if you want to grow in that area during the week, you want to go deeper, that, that's a resource that has been beneficial to me, and I would hope that it'd be beneficial to you. So let's pray. Father God, I thank you. I thank you that you are trustworthy. I thank you that you love us and you care for us. And God, you are out to do what is best for us. And so would you please, Lord, help us to trust you. Would you help our portraits to be reframed away from these, these tricky genie images that make us feel like you're gonna turn our desires and our prayers against us. And so we have to be careful for what we pray for and careful how we pray it because if we don't get it just right, you're gonna harm us or hurt us or ignore us. And God, would you help us to instead just trust and believe that you are for us and, and you are gonna work for good in our lives and for the good of the lives of the people that we love and you 
are trustworthy. I pray this all in your son's name. Amen.